and welcome to this week's episode of the Wild Brain Podcast. I am your host, Tiffany Crottinger. If you listened to last week's episode, you learned how salmon party in the deep blue sea. This week, I am once again joined by the marvelous walking ocean encyclopedia Kendra Nelson to talk about orcas, specifically the pride and joy of the Pacific Northwest, the Southern Residents. Her passion for these colossal and majestic creatures is infectious, and it is my hope that you leave infected with an undying love for these whales, because if after all of these episodes, you still can't bring yourself to give a splash about the salmon, just maybe you'll appreciate how important the salmon are to these intelligent, and as you'll learn, very fashionable cetaceans. Let's dive in. We are going to focus on charismatic large animals, because you can say like, Trying to convince people to care about salmon is, is one thing because I didn't care about salmon until I started diving for the mm. same thing. Like, oh yeah, orcas eat salmon. I should probably care. Or, you know, I love orcas. I don't know a single person who would say I don't love orcas. If they if they say that, sure. I don't want to be friends with them. And I also <laughs> think that maybe they don't have a heart. You don't trust them. <laughs> I, don't tr- I immediately don't trust them. So the important thing, especially for the Southern resident whales is, which we'll get into, salmon are critical for their survival. And... I didn't realize how, like, I guess, like, in dire straits the uh, resident pod was until 2018. You want to tell that story? Yeah, so the southern resident killer whales are a specific population of killer whales that are here in the Salish Sea area. They Their habitat range is technically from the tip of California, the northern tip, northern California, up to kind of the tip of Vancouver Island, the top end of that. That's kind of their main habitat range, but their main, main habitat range where we see them most frequently tends to be in the Salish Sea, Puget Sound area. So British Columbia and Washington, we, those are our whales. And they are critically endangered. They are salmon eating whales or fish eating. They don't just eat salmon as well. They do have other food, but their primary diet is Chinook salmon. What percentage of their diet is Chinook? Depends on the time of year. Okay. Technically, but it's about 80%. Whoa, a seventy a to eighty, and there are like they also eat chum and coho. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like rockfish. There's other fish that they get in there, but mm-hmm. predominantly, throughout the year, they are eating chinook salmon. And, you know, when chinook salmon are not doing too hot, which they have not been, right, that will then impact the killer whales. And so there are seventy three killer whales left. We believe that their carrying capacity was once around one hundred and twenty. Wow. And there was a big decline in the 80s, 70s, and 80s from the captive industry. Mm-hmm. So in SeaWorld and Vancouver Aquarium and at the time Marine Land of the Pacific mm-hmm. were coming in and hunting down these whales. Residents were the most common mm-hmm. to be sought after. Was it There's, just because they were convenient or? They were more, they were around more. Okay. So that's, that's kind of where the names resident and transient had come from mm-hmm. as well was there was this idea, okay, residents stay. Mm-hmm. The transients move around more, mm-hmm. which again, that's also kind of become a whole thing because it turns out the transients don't leave that much. <laughs> and so that's why if you're in like, if you're in British Columbia, Washington, you may notice a lot of people call transients bigs killer whales. Mm-hmm. And that is because they're trying to kind of get away from that transient name because they're not as transient in nature as was once believed. Mm-hmm. And they're named after the killer whale researcher, Michael Biggs, who worked in Canada to study these killer whales like in the 70s. He's kind of like one of the granddaddies of killer whale research here. Nice. Along with Ken Balcom. Rest in peace, Ken Balcom, who was the like father of Southern resident killer whale understanding. But yeah, so 73, a lot of their issues come from like malnutrition if they're not eating as much. Uh, they also do have really high pollutant levels, which obviously is nothing to do with the salmon specifically, but that comes again from us. Yay. Um, PCBs, PCBs used to be a huge thing in like paints, fire retardants, all kinds of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it would leak from the water or from us Mm -hmm. into the water. And so I think it was in the seventies or the eighties that they like got rid of PCBs, but by then, like they've made their impact. They're they're in the water. Yeah. And they just carry from plankton up to predators. Mm -hmm. And so by then it's like bioacclimated or biomagnified and it's stuck in them. So yeah, and then in 2018 was when J35 or mm-hmm. Tulalaqua, uh gave birth to a calf, which then died, and she pushed the calf around for several days. And it was dubbed the Tour of Grief, and it got kind of national and international attention on the Southern Residents, but they've been 
declining for years. Mm-hmm. And so it's not, it wasn't like a new thing, but mm-hmm. a lot of people did learn about it from that event. And around the same time, that was also when J50 or Scarlet had passed. Mm-hmm. So there was the tensions were like, it was a very emotional time. Like 2018, 2019 was a very emotional time for like Southern resident conservation mm-hmm. topics because of what was going on with J50 and then J35. But that got international eyes on the situation and people serving like, oh, that's so sad. And yeah. it's not, and she's not the only orca that's done that. It's been observed in Norway as well. Mothers pushing calves after they've died. Oh my gosh, that's um, really sad. So it's just, seems like it's just something that orcas have done. Hmm. Not super common, but mm-hmm. it isn't like she wasn't, it wasn't like a thing where she's the first one. Like, yeah. I think in um, Disney Plus has some whale show and one episode's about orcas. I think they actually show a scene of a killer whale in Norway or Iceland also doing this but it's heartbreaking yeah because they reproduction has been a big struggle for the southern residents i'm super curious because i get confused whenever i read news articles about the resident orca pods can you please do a little breakdown of their like is it a family tree what how is it considered yes so family tree's good so the southern resident killer whales are split up into three different pods that are within the population as a whole so a pod is basically a closely related matra line that travel together for about 50 percent of the time and then population are groups that will interact and interbreed and then the matra lines what i said with the pod description matra lines are the adult female and their descendants so the southern residents are split up into their individual matra lines the pods and then the entire population as a whole so there is j pod l pod and k pod now j pod has 25 members and six matra lines the j11s j14s j16s j17s j19s and j22s Wow. And then, woohoo! We're getting really into it. And then there's K-Pod, yeah. who are you know my favorite. Just gonna say. So then there's K-Pod, which has 16 members, and they're the smallest pod out of the three Southern Resident pods. Um, K-Pod has the K-12s, K-13s, K-14s, and K-16s. Um, I've seen the K-12s, mostly K-12 herself and K-37. And then there is L-Pod, and L-Pod is the largest of the three Southern Resident Pods, and there are 32 members. So the matra lines are the L-4s, L-11s, L-22s, L-47s, L-54s, and L-72s. There's also a subgroup, which is the L-12s, also known as the greater L-12s, which are like an association of multiple matra line and individuals that will just frequently travel together. I'm not going to lie, this sounds like a nightmare problem. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> All of these are like L or like alphabet mm-hmm. number. How do scientists tell each orca apart? There are quite a few distinguishing features with killer whales. The biggest one is the saddle patch, so that gray patch behind their dorsal fin. So the for, for resident killer whales, they have an open saddle patch. Not all of them, but of killer whale populations they're known to have these open saddle patch patches and each saddle patch is different kind of like a thumbprint or a fingerprint and so different scratches on them so scarring uh just different shapes within them that distinguishes them their dorsal fins can also be distinguishable so one killer whales are sexually dimorphic and so male and females don't look exactly the same females are smaller and their dorsal fins are smaller They're the short ones that are more curved, whereas male resident killer whales have tall, straight dorsal fins. And those dorsal fins will also be different. So like J1, who's like this iconic killer whale for the Southern residents, a big, tall male fin, but also had these curved like ruffles in it, which is why his nickname was Ruffles. Quite a few of them will have notches on their dorsal fins, like at different spots. So that can be a way to distinguish them from another individual. Males and females will have this as well. Another way, like you can tell from certain eye patch shapes, but it's not as easy to, to see their eye patches as it is their uh, dorsal fins and saddle patches when they go to dive. So those are the most known distinguishing features. But say if you're a little confused on some whales, sometimes adding in the eye patch can actually really help to tell them apart. And then you can technically tell the difference with some of their fluke differences, but you don't usually see the flukes, so it's not like the way to tell them apart. 
Alright, so uh, why is K-Pod your favorite? So K-Pod's my favorite because I've seen them. <laughs> Easy peasy. <laughs> yeah, so I, they're the first wild killer whales I ever saw. They were southern residents, which wasn't planned. We just went out to see whales and they were there. And I got engaged that day. So it was like this fun little, like, Aww. everything was going on. I was crying. It was a lot. I have a lot of really funny pictures from it. Your engagement was blessed by K-Pod. Exactly. So do you have a favorite member of K-Pod? K- or is it just like- <laughs> no, no, I do. K-37. I have a tattoo of him. And he's the first one that like I noticed because, you know, he's this big old dorsal fin. He's a big boy. Okay, so in this nightmarish algebra problem, why did people pick the J, L, and K of all the other letters in the alphabet? Yeah, the origin for J, K, and L, I don't remember exactly why they picked those letters i think it may have something to do with the northern residents for example have like the a pod and they have kind of like the earlier number the letters not numbers letters so maybe i think they may that may be why the southern residents got later letters yes yeah, so the prefix is just the letter and that letter indicates the pod and then the number is basically the order it indicates the order that that whale was born or identified so like j1 j2 they are J1 was the first whale from J-Pod identified, so he got J1. And then J2 is Granny, like a really iconic Southern resident as well. She's J-Pod. Southern residents, are they genetically different than like a Biggs killer whale? Like, are they their own thing? You're getting into a really fun (laughs) conversation there. (laughs) Okay. Because that has yet to be determined, but as rumor mill has it... There may be studies coming out soon that will start to get into the tax taxonomy debate oh. regarding killer whales, not just between transients mm-hmm. and residents, which is one that is currently being studied, the mm-hmm. genetic differences between those two, because they've been split off for thou- like thousands and thousands of years. They are not like their genetics branch was woo, a long time ago. Yeah. So they are genetically different. They don't mm-hmm. interbreed, which those tend to be things that and other animals designate speciesization. Right. But they have it for killer whales. Every killer whale in every part of the world is the same species. But that may change. I mean, in January, just like a little fun. <laughs> Which I think is this is when this episode's coming out. So yeah. maybe maybe by then some of you may have heard this. If any of you follow me, I will definitely be screaming about it. But the type D killer whale genetic analysis will be coming out in January, which may be a big precursor for officially splitting killer whales into different species, at least the type D. If the type D is as separate as is what is believed by many people, uh, same with the transients and residents, is that there are also studies being done on the genetics. So, what does it mean for like the scientific community or protections as a whole if it turns out that you're dealing with two different species? Is it a, just a cool science fact, or does it have some real world implications as far as protecting, studying, etc.? There'd be a change in the community, mm-hmm. but when it comes to like the conservation efforts, at least regarding residents and transients mm-hmm. or bigs, I think things would stay pretty similar besides like changing of names. So speaking of kind of like in the, the genetics, I love uh, studying genetic diversity. And you had said that there's only 73 residents mm-hmm. left. And I, I think recently there was a baby was there a baby recently yes there okay. was a baby there was in a baby k-pod k-45 which is prosper that's that's great but i'm curious are they replacing faster than they're dying and are we eventually going to run into an issue of genetic diversity that is another big question that is like on the mind of like the killer world conservation movement ken balcom who did act recently passed he actually had an interview i think in 2020 where he just bluntly talked about the issue of the genetics in the southern residents which most people like don't haven't talked about they're nowhere near being bottlenecked like Mm -hmm. we're not at the point where like okay like we're freaking out they're inbred like crazy like we're losing all genetic diversity Mm -hmm. they're not there yet and they breed within themselves anyways and for years so like And a study in 2018 actually shed a lot more light into this. And the paper was titled Inbreeding in an Endangered Killer Whale Population. It was a genetic analysis that was done and it found that two southern resident killer whale males primarily were siring more than half of the calves born from 1990. 
on. So 1990 and onwards. And it was J1 Ruffles and L41 Mega. And they had, like I said, sired more than half. I think it was 52% specifically since 1990 up until this paper. Um, That percentage has likely changed. It could also have been more because they weren't able to sample Mm -hmm. uh, every calf that was more recent to when the study was done. But yeah, so J1 had sired 16 calves confirmed with nine females. L41 had sired 20 with 11 females that they were able to confirm. And again, it's possible that there were more, but they hadn't been able to sample them. So the gene, that paper basically revealed that the gene pool was a lot smaller than they had originally anticipated. And there have been other instances of inbreeding. So there have been mom and sons that have bred together and had offspring, which was J42. (laughs) There was a father-daughter with J, again, again within J-Pod. And it was, uh, the offspring was J46 star. And then there were half siblings and uncle, half niece within L and K pod. Those are more distance, but incest babies are not the same in whales as they are like with humans. Really? So like for a lot of these populations like interbreed with each other. And obviously when there's 120 individuals, very different genetic makeup than when there's 73, but we're still not at the point where that incest would be getting that bad. But these males had been siring a big chunk of these calves, which did kind of be like, okay, one, the question is why? Like, from what we understand, there isn't anything that, like, they're not like birds or it's mm-hmm. not like um, like a peacock when they show their tails. Like, we don't know that they have some kind of mating show. Like, what is it that's making these three males the favorable breeding? Because there were well, other that's males That's so interesting that we available. know so little about that. Well, because, yeah, they're, it's hard to study. It's hard to study fish and not, they're not fish, but, like, behavior of animals in the water. Right. But to, like, our knowledge, like, th- that's another question. Is it? Like, what is it about those males that made mm-hmm. them the best for all those calves and for all, like, the mating, you know? What was what is what was it about those boys that was so favorable? And that's a question that still isn't fully understood because we don't know a ton about, mm-hmm. like, their mating practices. How many calves can a female have in her lifetime? In their lifetime? So if uh, their average lifespan for a female can be, like, between 50 to 80 years. Wow sometimes like lower down in the 30s mm-hmm. but like 50 30 50 80 like those kind of you'll see kind of those numbers thrown and they generally will have calves every five years and they don't start having calves until they're after about 13 so which is again like a big difference with in captivity calves at seven or whales at seven are getting pregnant but in the wild they don't naturally usually get pregnant until about their the teens interesting and then yes yeah, so like every five ish years they may have a calf and that's not like a, a rigid science, mm-hmm. but it seems like they let one calf kind of grow up a little bit more mm-hmm. and then mom might get pregnant again. So how many breeding females are in uh, the resident pod or is that? So in February of 2021, Ken Balcombe did an interview where he was talking about some of the residents and kind of being very blunt and honest about how he was feeling about the situation, mm-hmm. which people don't tend to be like super sad. <laughs> about it like you know you want to be hopeful which I'm all for like be hopeful there is still a chance Mm -hmm. but there are sometimes you look back at the numbers and it's kind of depressing yeah and so at the time there were 74 individuals left it's now 2023 almost Mm -hmm. or it is by the time you're listening to this and there's 73 Mm -hmm. so you know we've lost and gained but we're about the same number only in two years but still and he had said there's 74 individuals left mostly males and non-reproducing females and there were, he says, there were five successful births in 2015. That was the baby boom, mm-hmm. as it was so so lovingly dubbed, <laughs> the, the baby boom. And then there were none in 2016, none in 2017, one in 2018, one in 2019. In 2020, there were two successful births. Several females were confirmed pregnant. Mm-hmm. There have been no, uh, this is different now. As of 2021, there were no female calves born to K-Pod since 2011. That's different. There's now one new calf so it in was K-Pod. Prosper. It was Prosperous K45. Little miracle. I mean, honestly, like with K-Pod, it was kind of starting to feel like the hope was gone. <laughs> Just a little bit, at least for me. And as of 2021, there were 21 reproductive females left and only 10 had had successful births in the last 10 years. And that's the thing, too. There's a super high mortality rate in the Southern residents. Yeah. Um, when analyzing levels of their reproductive hormones from SCAT, mm-hmm. which SCAT research with whales is so 
entertaining because it's dogs on boats that are sniffing out the poop. Are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> there's there's an episode on Disney Plus. I don't remember what the show's called, but I think it's like Working Dogs and mm-hmm. Eba, the whale dog who is with um, Wild Orca, the organization, mm-hmm. run by Dr. Deborah Giles, who is amazing. She sniffs out whale poop. <laughs> so that researchers can collect them and she can sniff out resident poop and transient poop and they're like training more dogs to be poop she can sniffers. tell the different types of pods it comes from even well i think they can tell but oh, I okay can, okay she's just they, looking for poop yeah but they have taught her like because the poop will smell a little bit different that's so interesting but yeah so them from scat samples mm-hmm. of southern resident females they found that 69 this is as of 2021 mm-hmm. so i don't think they've updated these numbers but the study came out in 2020 21 or around that time uh 69% of pregnancies were unsuccessful and one third of those fail late state fail late in gestation or immediately postpartum so calves are dying really late in the pregnancy or really quickly after they're born like with j35 is it the starvation issue or what's going on here yeah the study pointed that they think that it's a nutritional stress <laughs> that's the cause of pregnancy failure there aren't like other i mean pollution can always be a big thing it seems that the underlying issue has consistently been food yeah so and and salmon yeah salmon <laughs> it all comes back it oh yes it does it always comes back it's always salmon in the northwest you literally cannot have a northwest without salmon. well we're built on it you can't the forests everything is built on salmon so you can't like get away from it so that's a horrifying number like roughly. yeah they're not they're not like fun numbers which i yeah. think maybe is, i've said them a ton of times i can never remember them and i think maybe it's like a coping mechanism your brain is just like no i always forget <laughs> that that number and be like you don't want to remember how many pregnancies fail and how many like what all those numbers are because they're they're sad that is really sad and that's so it really is to the point where you're looking at like maybe the resident orcas won't be here in 50 years can science intervene with that or if it gets bad enough or do we just let them kind of uh, interbreed themselves into extinction? so an example of that could kind of be with the vaquita so the critically endangered little porpoise population in the gulf of mexico or the no the sea of cortez and mm-hmm. they there's only like what under 12 individuals left and i've asked people um are they not bottlenecking at this point there's so few they're not apparently scientists are not concerned about them bottlenecking themselves and they're at an extremely low population so apparently like every like scientists still have extreme amounts of hopes for this population so it seems like inner like inbreeding is a concern but even when some cetacean populations are at extremely low numbers it doesn't appear to be a huge concern, at least with this Vikita example, researchers are not worried about bottlenecking and about genetic consequences at this point. And they think that the population, if given the ability, could repopulate and be great again. So we have, we've already talked about the starvation issue. And the problem is, is that area is a major traffic port. So it's not like it's going to go away. So are we just sealing the fate of the orcas in um, the name of progress? Well, that's, you know, again, all these like really deep questions. <laughs> but it, that that's again where, I mean, I would argue it's all a consumption issue. Yeah. I mean, in BC, they're wanting to build a new terminal, which would increase boat and tanker mm-hmm. traffic so that they can have more goods imported. They're doing a pipeline, like all these kind of things mm-hmm. that the like pinnacle of the issue tends to come down to consumption yeah. and that in the Western society, in our settler colonial ways, we're just obsessed with consuming. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying that as someone who's like, I'm not a minimalist. I am not zero waste. Like mm-hmm. I try to be mindful, but I lose I buy, you know, candy because I crave it in plastic packaging. I will buy a t-shirt. Some, like, you know, like you I'm can't not get away from it. Plastic's yeah, I'm not everywhere. I'm not sitting <laughs> yeah. here. I'm not sitting here trying to be like all of you suck. You guys should consume less. I I I'm I'm with you. This is an all of us issue. Mm-hmm. But consumption's a major issue. And yeah. so we want to increase terminal traffic because we want to consume more. Our mm-hmm. nations want to make more money there so that they can fund like in the US, they can fund continual military efforts Mm -hmm. they can fund all these things i guess for some people they consider that continuing 
consumption Mm -hmm. is continuing progress and continuing Mm -hmm. human society so in a way to a lot of people yeah that is i guess the the consequence is the more (laughs) we do our own thing sucks to be an animal yeah you're just in the way now it is a massive shift from first nations ideas of living with nature versus today's ideas you know clearly where we're at right now the intrinsic value of the salmon and the orcas don't stack up to where we're at Mm-hmm. Sorry. At this point, you as a content creator and your your entire job is to educate, educate, mm-hmm. educate, educate. And I know at the zoo where we are, we really focus on empathy. Like, how do we relate these animals to us? How do we not humanize them, but how do we create empathy for these animals? And the hard thing about any type of ocean going issue at all is it's under the water. No one sees it. So for you, how do you spread the message of how do I save or why should people care about the orcas? Because it it just it's just truly comes down to convincing people that orcas are important because they're important. It's the intrinsic value. Like how, how do you communicate that? That's is an area where like the learning about killer whale familial structure, seeing things like when J thirty five pushed her baby, mm-hmm. those kind of things kind of helped. Like that sounds bad. I mean, not not the the their fam like their family, right? aspect but when they push a dead baby (laughs) what are your favorite facts about the southern residents that you're just like everyone should know about this and if they don't know about it then i have failed as a human well the fun thing is like when you share those like facts Mm -hmm. they seem more human because if any animal has a culture or familial structure that's mm-hmm. similar to humans. It is killer whales, and especially yeah. residents. And kill- and residents' behavior cannot be applied to every single killer whale population because not every single killer whale population is the same. So not every southern residents and resident killer whales function on matriarchal societies. Uh, males will spend their entire lives with their moms. Really? Uh, and often when mom dies, the the mortality or like that that male that that son is gonna like has a higher chance of dying i didn't know that they were mama's boys i had no idea they are such mama's boys (laughs) Um, like the residents are the most studied killer whales because they are they were very like resident in the Mm -hmm. area as the name suggests um and so things like that they're mama's boys even when mom dies males death i don't know death rate it's not death rate but it's like their time is shortened because mom's gone and they tend to be very close to mom I like the fact that like they're a little they have some homoerotic behaviors really? with each other. So yeah, resident killer whales have been observed many times um having fun with other male killer whales. I had no idea. Yeah. <laughs> it's like and it, it's not just resident, it is mm-hmm. other populations, but like the resident ones are like I had yeah, no they'll, idea. I yes, know very they... little about the Southern residents, so I'm fascinated by this. That's one thing, yes. Southern and Northern residents, uh, male male um, sexual behaviors have been observed many times. Huh. That's interesting. And there was recently a paper, maybe it wasn't a paper, but there was something I saw on like this Facebook group that is a bunch of like cetacean researchers that even killer whale, another population, a young like juvenile male and an older male were have having fun which is interesting and like there's thoughts like is it some kind of like like teaching to prepare i don't know (laughs) is it it just like boys will be boys is it like yeah so it's not really known like why there's different theories as to why i think one one paper that was done on the northern residents was um if people want to look it up one of the authors was naomi rose so that will help i forget the name of it but that's one paper that was done on the topic from i think that was in the 2000s or 90s that one paper but that's a fun fact to like throw out i'll <laughs> usually be like whales are gay <laughs> so, which they're that's not what it is it's it's homoerotic sexual mm-hmm. behaviors it's like you know your official sciencey term but if i'm having fun i'll just be like did you know whales are gay <laughs> um which again that can tie people to, <laughs> I mean, to understanding yeah, them more for sure how about um, do um, one of the questions I, I got that I thought was really interesting is do they have their own languages like between pods? Yes. Yes. So Southern residents as a whole have like the resident, like their language. And then each pod will have like their own little like dialects. They have their own inflections and sounds. And, and like you talk to people and they listen to the hydrophones. I am not like in tune to like the differences between the whale calls. So I cannot I don't know. I haven't noticed it. I'm not there yet. <laughs> or Orca Lab BC and like uh, 
Orchid Behavior Institute. Those are two that like kind of like do their thing with the noise aspect and mm-hmm. like dialects and all that. And I believe like K-Pod is like a little more shrill or have like this thing is like mm-hmm. something I believe I've read about. Uh, Monica Shields has a book about the Southern Residents and she talks about it. She has a background in uh, their call behavior and like listening to their calls. So she touches on it in the book and I'm pretty sure I remember her actually saying what the difference is in like the dialects between the pods are. That's crazy. So yeah, they do. They have different languages and there is a potential even universal killer whale call. So each killer whale population has completely different language. Like they don't really think that they can like intercommunicate. So like if your Antarctic orcas came up and met up with your northern hemisphere whales, they wouldn't know how to talk to each other. Whoa. But there is this one call, I believe it is called the S10 call, has been recorded in multiple populations all over the world. And it sounds like, from what I've been told, it's, and from what I remember listening to it, it almost sounds like laughter. Like it, it's like, <laughs> it has like, like staccatos going on. That's not like, it's not, it, it's not people think it is laughter, but yeah. it seems like this may be this uniting call that all orcas might do. Are you curious to see what that S10 call sounds like? Well, Kendra's got you covered. She sent me this file. Here you go. S10. But yeah, so they all, they do have different languages, which again is like a cool way to connect people in terms of if they want to care, it's really easy to get people to care about something that A, they think is cute or two, that they could relate to. The other question, and this is, this is, I have no idea. Um, I'm mm-hmm. reading a book right now called When Elephants Weep, which is fascinating. And I don't know if you've read any of Franz de Waal's works. Uh, he did a lot of primate behavior, but it's really hard to study what we would consider intelligence in a mammal that doesn't have hands or would communicate in like uh, an air environment. So have killer whales ever been um, observed using tools? Do they have the ability to pass on knowledge? Are there weird cultural practices amongst different pods? Yes, the salmon hat trend of the what? killer whales. Okay. So going back to salmon. <laughs> yeah, go back to salmon. So in oh my god, I don't even remember what year it was. Some year a while a while ago, like long before. There were there was an individual, I believe initially from K Pod or L Pod, that put a salmon on her rostrum, we'll say head, but on her head and was like parading around with the salmon on her head fancy victorian ladies what and are then doing? and then other whales in the southern western population started to do it as well it's called fashion maybe you've heard of it and it kind of became like my one of my like amazing fantastic love her to pieces friends on social media um emma luck northern naturalist if anyone likes orcas she is your your girl all she does is like killer whale related content. But yeah, so she, the, these whales, they started like parading around wearing these hats, these salmon hats. She tweeted about it with like an infographic of the whale wearing a salmon hat. And it went really viral. People like on TikTok wrote songs <laughs> like about the salmon hat thing, which is really funny. It was in 1987. Yeah, so this happened in 1987. A female from K Pod started carrying around a dead salmon on her head, and within weeks, L Pod and J Pod joined in. And so it was dubbed like this example of a time that orcas had this cultural fad like they had this specific behavior that was shared between their population that was acquired through social learning which would indicate okay like this is an interesting like cultural fad like Mm -hmm. is this an indication that there's some culture going on and and it is widely believed with killer whales or and thought that there is culture and that actually the the females so the matriarchs pass down that culture to the other whales in the pods there's no like we we don't have scientific evidence of that Mm -hmm. besides i guess like wearing salmon hats honestly though the most important thing is like first of all we're not quite sure we need time to study it Mm -hmm. but there's like that sense of urgency of like we're running out of time to understand this and how horrifying would it be to wipe out a species that's like so highly intelligent and we never even knew and then you're like so long and thanks for all the fish type of scenario yeah well and that's and even having the questions and the hypotheses like 
is it is that why matriarchs live for so long because female resident killer whales have a longer lifespan than males do and they live post-reproduction which they're one of the few species like humans and elephants and i think some monkeys that go through menopause what live yeah that's another fun fact female killer whales go through menopause yeah, so they'll like just like stop reproducing at a certain point, but they can continue to live. Whereas most species only live while they're reproductively available, I guess, like while they can reproduce. Mm-hmm. It's not a common thing for species to just not be able to reproduce and to continue on. Like menopause is not a common animal thing. Yeah, no, that isn't. It's insane. and it's it's known to be in species that we consider advanced elephants, mm-hmm. monkeys. It's I think killer whales, and it's either, I think it's narwalugas. There's one other whale species I know that I think has been also connected with ha- like going through menopause. We know that the, the, they're mama's boys. Um, do the female babies, do they go and start their own pods? Like reverse, like we're like a, in a, a wolf, the boys get kicked out, like good luck, make your own pack. Is it the, the daughters who get sent out or do they stay? I guess they'll, it depends. Yeah, it depends. Um, some will like branch off and they'll have their own like matriarchy going on. But like it's pretty normal also to see residents kind of all come together in like super pods or be traveling with multiple groups or matro lines. They tend to be split up one among J, K, and L pods, which are the three pods. And then within those pods, there'll be the matro lines. So mom and then her branch mm-hmm. of, of family. And then another mom and their branch of family, whether that's including sons and daughters, sisters. And, like, they won't always, like, it doesn't mean a female's going, like, when she has a calf that she splits off and does her own mm-hmm. thing. There is, to, from my understanding, there isn't, like, a specific moment where they know, like, okay, well, now she's going to go do her own thing. Mm-hmm. It just kind of depends. And so some of them have, like, their own things going on, but they just, they do just, in general, just stick to family. And they're not seen, like, alone. Like, they usually are traveling in with their immediate family and then sometimes extended through the rest of the or the pod do you have any more cool orca facts because i'm learning so much (laughs) one of the questions was if they eat moose yeah what's up with that like somebody just texted me that question i was like wait what yeah so there's this rumor (laughs) on social media that killer whales are the primary predator of moose because moose can swim there's only been one recorded incident of an orca attacking and eating, or killing, not eating, killing a moose, and that was in the 90s in Alaska. So based on that one incident, we cannot say that they are a primary predator of moose, but there has been an, there has, it is, like, it happened. They killed a moose. Did they kill but, for fun, like uh, dolphins do? Have they been uh, recorded doing that? Yeah. Or, yeah. So, yeah, so... Um, so the residents, you know, they only eat fish, but mm-hmm. they will kill porpoises and seals. There's a couple of thoughts on this. One is, is it tra- like, is it, it tends to be younger individuals mm-hmm. that are doing this. So is it like they're learning how to hunt with bigger animals and then it dies and they play with it? <laughs> uh, were they just playing too rough? Did they get kidnap this other animal and then play too rough and it kills it? You, you don't know. And it, you can't. Like you don't really want to speculate and yeah. say that they're like like they kill for fun, but they will kill and then they will appearly appearing they will kill things that they do not eat and appearingly play with it, with what we have you know perceived as play and it happens with mm-hmm. transients too. Transients will kill salmon and they don't eat salmon, and they'll That's play with rude. it. So you know it it seems like yes they will kill things and play with it, but there that may not be the reason that they kill it. There's different thoughts as to like. Well, were they just learning how to hunt? Were they just messing around and got a little too rough? We like, need more we research. That's, that's that. More than anything, we should just save the Southern residents so we know if they play with their food or not. The yeah, that's like the main the reason that we actually want to save them. <laughs> so we could just really analyze that question. Speaking of saving these, um, as we get closer to the end of uh, the Orca episode, the most common thing is, is like to care about something, you need to see something. We're very touch visual creatures. So for people who want to see Orcas, Um, Where can they be found? But most importantly, what are the best practices when whale watching? So orcas can be found globally, but there are definitely places that are easier to see them than most. One of which being the Pacific Northwest and like Alaska. So Alaska, British Columbia, Washington. Those are great places to go where you can see killer whales either from the shore or from boats from whale watching. So whichever one you prefer, I like it. 
that's one of those questions where if you have personal ethic feelings about or against whale watching, totally fine. Like, I'm not going to be the advocate for whale watching. I'm also not, like, a demonizer of whale watching. can understand why people don't like it. If you don't want to whale watch, there are amazing places along coasts. Uh, where you can see killer whales from the shore. There are actually designated areas in some places like BC and Washington and California called Whale Trail, and there are hikes that will actually like have signage that will say, these are the kind of whales you could see. It's never guaranteed, but it is possible. If you're in Washington, there's places like Orca Network on Facebook, and they'll be posting every day about whale sightings, and so if you follow those threads, you may actually be able to drive somewhere and see the whales in person which like as for whale watching when picking whale watching again like personal they all tend to be like okay there are definitely some companies that like i personally am not a big fan of Mm -hmm. but there are a lot of great ones my recommendation always for picking a a whale watching company that if you want to like try and vet and see what people think is reaching out to people that you may know in the area that like may know about things. Like if they've heard a rumor or if they know, or if they have recommendations for one they've been with that they really like, or some people have preference like for boat size. So there you can get on like big catamaran style, like little fairy ish boats, or you can get on the Zodiacs, which are open air. You're in these big cozy suits and which would not be fun in this weather. <laughs> no. But in the summer it's really nice. Yeah. But um there's like I we we me and my husband love like the zodiac ones because we like being able like to sit right there. You're on the water, like it feels really cool. You're in these big old flotation suits that keep you warm. Um so there's like preference for things like that mm-hmm. as well. To keep in mind, like if you have kids, don't do that one, maybe. If they're like little. <laughs> oh gosh. So that, like there's different things that will right. factor into like what whale watching experience that you pick. Um but my recommendation is always just reach out, like talk to people if you can. If you can't, read reviews, look at the different companies and just kind of go off vibe at that point. Like if you don't have a way to like vet if reviews aren't the most helpful in your like search, you can just kind of go off a vibe. You could look mm-hmm. and see um, if there's anyone working there like that posts like if they're naturalist posts and our photographers or whatever they post. Because sometimes if you almost, if you can know what the rules are in terms of distance like you may be able to pick up on some things like oh these people look like they do drones when you're not supposed to have drones up around the whales Mm -hmm. or they do drones and it's not illegal but they get really close like that's really disturbing or they let animal they let people touch the whales which has shockingly happened in california so wow (laughs) first of all don't do that ever (laughs) rule of the wise you don't touch them don't touch the whales even if they're really close just don't touch them that's like the number one rule in diving don't touch it just don't don't touch touch. the very last question is it's a two-parter one why should people care and for people who already care or are understanding why they should care what can they do to advocate for both salmon and orcas so why should people care about salmon and orcas well from a like biological scientific argument salmon are the foundation of the pacific northwest our forests are here because of salmon the forest systems near salmon rivers grow like three times as fast as other forest systems because when salmon die they provide nitrogen and some yummy yummy nutrients for the forest and it helps the forest grow and so we you know we wouldn't have these big beautiful forests that we're so famously known for without salmon we have the best forests they're beautiful (laughs) just thank it is thanks to the salmon so if you want to keep enjoying that like we want to keep preserving salmon populations so they can keep nourishing the forest salmon feed us and we we like salmon so if you want to keep eating salmon you gotta help salmon salmon feed the orcas and if you like orcas whether it's like you're just think they're pretty and want a poster on the wall whether you want to work with orcas whether you just want to go see them and go whale watching whatever that may be you want to you want to preserve salmon in order to preserve the orcas and you want to preserve everything because ecosystems are balanced or they should be balanced. And when one part of that ecosystem falls, it's going to impact everyone. So when we lose killer whales, that's going to impact salmon. That's going to impact us. That's going to impact other fish species. It's going to infect, impact vertebrates, other killer whale populations. It will see an impact. It's not just, they're not just going to disappear and nothing's going to change. And the same with salmon massively impact 
not that the the res, not that killer whale loss isn't going to be massive, but salmon will be hugely massive if we continue to see the declines in populations as we have been seeing. Salmon are a keystone species. Over a hundred species directly in, uh, benefit from salmon populations in the Pacific Northwest. Wow. So when we lose salmon, every single one of those species, wolves, bears, trees, humans, fungus, other fish, the jellyfish that some of them eat, the, the plankton that they eat, the things that eat them, everyone and everything is going to be impacted and not in a good way. Yeah. yeah. And so preserving that continues to have a balance in the ecosystem, which we like desperately need. And then if you already care about that, Oh, well, one, two. And if you don't care about any of the science stuff, they're cool. Like, like, like yeah. objectively, salmon and whales are, like, freaking cool. Salmon are, like, they they are born in freshwater, and they miraculously just leave freshwater and go into saltwater. Insanely cool. That, like, bodily change they have to go through. And then they live in the ocean. They get super big and fat. Then they come back to freshwater. Once again, change their body. Then change their colors. And then their faces. They will- if they're their a male. faces they'll grow teeth they'll get a humped back like their teeth like look like dog like they're in their teeth are wild they're really cool like dog teeth like you do not want to get bit by one of those suckers they don't need it to eat anything they don't have it like they don't hunt when they're in freshwater they solely grow teeth so they can battle each other is that not cool their colors change like salmon are just really cool like uh end of sentence so if you just don't care about the sciencey part just objectively salmon are cool Whales are also objectively really cool. I mean, killer whales are the biggest species of dolphin. They're cool looking, black and white. Like, they have a whole thing going on. They're awesome. They're mama's boys. They have a female-run society. Who doesn't love that as a woman? That's incredibly appealing. They're cool animals, okay? And they're pretty, and they're... They make cute, like they're cute when they're not salmon are cute when they're babies. They're fish. Like little baby killer whales are adorable. Killer whales are majestic and beautiful. So you guys should care about them. But then what can people do for residents and orcas? So not in the Pacific Northwest. You can still help because there, one, are salmon in a lot of places. So even if you're landlocked, you may have kokanee, which are a, they're sockeye salmon, but that are restricted to only living in freshwater lakes. And they are either stocked. Some kokanee are not doing too hot. So if you you can, like, look it up. Utah has kokanee. Like, there's tons of places that have kokanee salmon. So if you want to, like, do some work on the ground and be helping salmon, look into anything local. Look into local movements to protect fish in your area. Uh, You can donate to organizations that are in the Pacific Northwest. You can share things online with family about like encouraging other people to learn about the issue. Then you could try to consume more consciously when it comes to if you're going to be eating salmon. You can go to the grocery store. You can learn about what you are considering for sustainable seafood consumption for yourself and make choices that align with that. I won't say what that is because every person will have a different takeaway. But whatever you come to, that's a great way to make an impact is find your definition of sustainable seafood and salmon and live by that when you go shopping if you live in the pacific northwest try to get involved in like freshwater salmon restoration projects a lot of organizations are starting to do like cleanup efforts uh pulling of uh invasive slash displaced species and planting endemic and native species that will help build up riparian habitats those are fantastic you can also just donate if you don't want to like get out and get your hands dirty um, but volunteering is fantastic. If you if there is an organization, like just pick up plastic if you're walking by a river. If it's like salmon spawning season, you're going out to watch salmon, like don't step in the water. Be respectful. Be quiet. Like you don't want to disturb. Like you can frighten them. So be really mindful. That won't come till like ne- like next fall, but still. Um, for killer whales, again, donate to organizations. If any of them have volunteer opportunities, get involved in volunteering. Uh, share information. Uh, a big thing everyone can do is push for systemic change. If you're in these states or provinces where a lot of these issues are being decided on, vote for candidates and politicians that are advocating for salmon and whales slash the environment and climate change and holding like corporations or like other politicians responsible for the impact that they're doing to the planet. Big one. Systemic change is huge. Yes. yes. So vote, vote, yes. vote, vote, vote. vote. <laughs> Write letters to like breach dams to 
get rid of fish farms if that's your thing. If you want to get rid of them, write letters or do do the call to actions that organizations are sharing with you. Organizations like Wild Orca have a whole page on their website that are just full of call to actions that you can do um, that don't always involve like donating. You can make phone calls, write letters, write an email, all that kind of fun stuff. Whatever you're comfortable with, you can do things to make a difference. Petitions. There's all kinds of stuff, which is why a big thing is just to follow different organizations because everyone kind of has their fingers in different issues. And then you can kind of stay, stay up to date on what's going on. And everyone just go out and keep learning, like learn more about the whales. Because of course I didn't share everything. I attempted to share numbers, but I don't have everything like remembered off top of my head. I'm, I'm horrible with the numbers. Um, So as always double check, you can fact check me if you're like, well, that's interesting. I always encourage that. I'm like, just because I said it doesn't mean it's always true or I won't remember a number right so I want to throw that out there (laughs) if you're interested do your due diligence learn it yourself like always it's cool to be inspired by it's fantastic to be inspired by someone but it's really fun to find it yourself and to learn about it because that's you may find something that I didn't find interesting that you're like oh my gosh that's really interesting yeah like maybe it was the bit about orcas wearing salmon hats dive in Once again, thank you so much, Kendra, for sharing your passion with us. If you want to learn more, please, you have to follow her on her social media account at IntertitleCandy. If there is orca news, she will be the first to post it. She even keeps a personal orca journal. Not convinced there's anyone other human on the planet that likes orcas more than her. If you are now an orca convert, please check out the show notes on my website, www.wildbrood.art, where you can find a bucket of resources Kendra sent me, as well as links to more orca sounds. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support Wildbrood's conservation mission, please visit www.wildbrood.art, where you can find a plethora of cranky coffee animals to purchase. This year, 100% of all profits from the Wildbrood Art Division are going straight to the Roatan Marine Park in support of their coral restoration efforts. And... That's a wrap. After four months of planning, scheduling, editing, shifting schedules, and research, the Salmon series has come to an end. I started this series on a whim after seeing a Save the Salmon poster in a window, and after researching, I learned how the salmon are critical to the health of my beloved ocean. Because, like many of you listening, the thought of a single fish wasn't that exciting, but mess is my favorite thing, now we have a problem. Soon this hyper-focused rabbit hole I found myself falling down became yet another soapbox for me to stand on and open the door to interview all of the knowledgeable people you have just heard. A deep, personal debt of gratitude to each guest that appeared on the show. Mitch Cutter of the Idaho Conservation League, without you, this podcast would never have gotten off the ground. Thank you so much for investing your time into helping me make connections. A thousand and five thank yous to Jeremy Five Crows for helping me understand the importance of salmon to the Pacific Northwest and their sacred history. Without his interview, I would have not published the other four. Another massive thank you to the Idaho Fishing Game, including Lance Hebden, Chief Deputy of the Bureau of Fisheries, for scheduling my interview with John Casanelli. John Casanelli, head of the Imagine's Fish Program, for taking time out of his day to answer all of my hatchery and fish management questions. Dan Baker, manager of the Eagle Hatchery, for setting up my tour with me, and then sitting down with me afterwards to fill in the blanks and give me a solid foundation in the Idaho Sockeye Salmon Program. A special thank you to Nate Heiner for giving me the tour of the Eagle Hatchery. Without their help, the Hatchery article would not exist. And of course, Kendra Nelson, who went above and beyond to make sure I understood all of the issues the ocean salmon and orca face. We spoke multiple times outside of this episode, and she furnished me with a plush list of resources for those who want to learn more. Without this amazing group of people, this podcast simply would not exist. Thank you, thank you, thank you, everyone who participated. If you are still listening, please stay tuned. We are now entering the Ocean series. This is a series I have been dying to get to. I have lined up fantastic guests to talk about scuba diving, coral restoration, sharks, and so much more. See you in a few weeks.